Good morning, everyone. I'm Tim Shorey, one of the pastors here, privileged to serve you this morning by opening God's Word uh, to be heard in reading and in preaching. And I invite you uh, to Ephesians chapter 4. The text just read by Rodney is a text obviously fitting for the morning, but also, as we'll see in a moment, fitting as a backdrop, as a, as a context for the topic of the morning. Ephesians chapter 4, I'm going to read just one verse, verse 28. Let the thief steal, or no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will come and fill us with the Spirit of Jesus, who made himself poor, that we might be made rich. Teach us the spirit of giving, the spirit of sacrifice, the spirit of self-surrender, that we might live like Jesus who loved us so very much. In his name we pray, amen, amen. Well, our, our message this morning marks the conclusion of our Explore membership series that we've been doing over the last uh, several weeks, uh, which is a series of messages that has fallen within the, the setting of a longer series of messages through the book of Ephesians. Uh, and the longer series, as you'll remember, was simply called In. What does it mean to be in Christ? And then this Explore membership series has been called In Christ, In the Church. What does it mean to be in the church as members of the body of Christ living out our lives? And the last message in that series this morning is simply entitled, Growing in Our Giving. By the way, for those that are not aware, all of our messages are recorded, so you can just go to the Risen Hope Church uh, website and find these messages if you want to listen to your heart's content uh, to God's Word preached from week to week. But what is, this, what is this growing in our giving, doing in the context of Palm Sunday or doing in the context of the Holy Week? Why are we addressing this message, this topic this morning? Well, in part, is just being honest, it's because we need to we need to conclude this series on Explore, and, and we need to want to get it in before the Easter season is actually upon us. But beyond that, if you give just a little bit of thought to the topic, you'll realize this is not a stretch at all. To speak about self-sacrificing generosity on the day that marks the entrance of King Jesus into Jerusalem, Riding a donkey is a very legitimate application of the Palm Sunday event. In fact, a major part, a major point of Palm Sunday is just this. Jesus, our King, 
rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. On a donkey. In the text that was just read by our brother, say to the daughter of Zion, behold your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The point is that kings don't do that. Kings ride chariots. Kings ride stallions. They are carried on fancy seats that have poles up high above the crowd. Kings don't ride on donkeys, but this king rode on a donkey. This was one more expression of the self-giving, self-renouncing love of our Lord Jesus Christ. Particularly as we are aware of the fact that he was riding into Jerusalem in the last week of his life to pour out his life for us. Psalm 104 says of the Lord, Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God. You are very great. You make the clouds your chariot. You ride on the wings of the wind. He who made the clouds his chariot, the one who rides the wings of the wind, rode into... Jerusalem on a donkey. He who is high and exalted, he who deserves to ride the clouds in great glory, rode on a little mule. And he gave himself poor. He left his father's throne above. So great, so infinite, His grace. He left the palace of heaven. He was born in a stable. He had no place to lay His head while on earth. He wore no royal garments. He rode no gleaming chariot. He strode no white stallion. He put on no airs of wealth or power or glamour, but instead climbed the top of a donkey and rode all the way to the abject poverty and humiliation of the cross. Brothers and sisters here this morning, I say this not lightly or as a Christianism or cliche, but when we think about Jesus riding on a donkey into Jerusalem to his death, this is one of the great points. It's not the greatest point of all of that. The greatest point, he rode to his death for our sins on the cross. But he did ride in poverty to his death to provide an example for us, a model for us, after which we are to pattern our lives. A path of generosity and self-sacrifice that looks to the needs of others, even if it be a great expense to ourselves. That's what Paul tells us in chapter 5, right? In verse two, walk in love as Christ has loved us and gave himself up for us. This is the model. This is the example. This is the pattern. This is the call of God on our lives. This is, this is what Paul says explicitly in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 where he's teaching about giving. And he's trying to motivate the Corinthians and motivate us to give generously. And he says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sakes, our sakes, he became poor, so that we by his poverty might be made rich. We are to walk in that kind of love. We are to give ourselves. 
I'm not sure it's accurate to say we are to give ourselves poor, but we are to give ourselves poorer so that we might make others richer in grace and in truth. This is a major Bible theme. A few years ago, I, I took the time in my study to start with Genesis chapter 1 and flip every page of the Bible and look for every single reference in the Bible to giving and generosity and sacrifice. And I found 200 to 250 references. This matters to God. This is, this is significant to God. And we, and we come to this text here and we realize in Ephesians 4 and verse 28 that Paul, in the middle of his discussion of what it means to be in Christ, in the church, he talks about giving and, and he puts it pretty bluntly. Here's the short version of what he says in verse 28. Work hard so you can give much. Work hard so that you can give much. Now we need to understand the context, right? Chapter 4, verse 1, look at it. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Paul in chapters 4 through 6 is telling us how to live in a way that matches the calling of God's salvation and God's grace in our lives. And he has already told us in chapters 1 through 3 what that calling is like. So if you go back to chapter 1 and verse 3, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. In chapter 1, we've been lavished with His grace. In chapter 1 again, we have received an eternal inheritance. In chapter 2, we have been saved according to the immeasurable riches of His grace. In chapter 3, we've experienced the unsearchable riches of Christ. In chapter 3, at the end, in a message we're going to do next week, we have been lavished with the surpassing love of Christ that, that cannot be known. The height of it, the depth of it, the breadth of it, the width of it cannot be known. We have been lavished with that so much that He has given to us far beyond everything that we can think or imagine. And it's in the context of that lavish love and grace of God that Paul now says, live in a manner worthy of. Live life as those who know that you are rich in Christ. Live life as those who know that you have been lavished with the surpassing love of Christ, the unsearchable grace of Christ. Live life as those who know no matter how little you have materially, you have everything in Jesus. Live worthy of the calling. Paul gives it to us in simple terms here. So simple that we might be tempted to think of it almost moralistically. He says, work hard so you can give much. Almost sounds like just a rule for life. Just a, all right, just, here's how to do it. You know, like Ben Franklin and his pithy stuff, you know, just, you know. Which I can't even think of any of the examples right now, but they were pithy. I, I do know, uh, and maybe a little bit wise. But he, you know, work hard so you can give much. 
But see, we don't want to reduce that to moralism. We don't want to reduce that to just a little proverb or a little bit of a rule for life. We want to understand it in the context of all that Christ has done for us and given to us. We are rich in Jesus. And out of the riches that we have, Paul says, work hard so you can give much. Let's look at the text. Very simple, actually. It's a very easy-to-break-down text. We're going to break it into three simple parts. What we don't do, steal. What we do, do. Work hard. And why we do what we do, so we may have to give. Okay, that's the, the three parts of it. So we start with... What don't we do? We don't steal. Let the thief, he says in verse 28, let the thief no longer steal. The grammar of the language Paul uses here says something startling. It's, It's present tense. He's talking about people who are actually currently stealing. They're not to do it any longer. Now what's remarkable about that is that he is writing here to Christians. We learned this back in chapter 1. This is to the saints who are in Christ Jesus. This letter is being sent to believers. And Paul is saying here that apparently some of the saints in the Ephesian church hadn't got this memo yet. You're not supposed to be stealing. Stealing's taboo. It's not right. Friends, there's a side note here that's worth considering. It's a, it is a significant theological truth about our condition as human beings. It is possible to be a saint, to be a Christian, to have a new heart born again by the power of God. It is possible to belong to Jesus Christ and still be so ethically impaired And so affected by our culture that we don't even realize the difference between right and wrong. These Christians had to be told to stop stealing. Wouldn't you think that would have come natural? Wouldn't you think that Christians would just know that? No. The reality is that our our hearts, though they are born again, though we are new creations in Christ, though we are His workmanship, as it says in chapter 2, our hearts still have this mess and mass of sin all kind of tied to the heart. And and it's still there, and it, it impairs our ethics. It impairs our morals. It impairs our sense of right and wrong. And so there are things that we do that if you really stop to think about it, you would say, it's obvious I shouldn't do that. You know, like lying. I think it's pretty obvious you shouldn't lie. But we do. You know, taking God's name in vain. You know, any degree of thinking about God's in heaven, he's great, he's holy. He could smash me. Maybe I ought to treat his name reverently. You'd think that would be natural to us, but it's not. Or, well, any number of things. For them, as believers, it was stealing. Stealing. 
There's a warning here. All of us need a serious ethic and morality reboot. We, we need, even though we're believers, we need to make sure that all of our ethics and morals and behavior are rooted in the Word of God, are clarified by the Word of God, are defined by the Word and by the law of God, rather than our perception of what's right and wrong or what others may think is right and wrong. And think about stealing. And we humans are, it seems, not it seems, we are by nature grasping, taking creatures, aren't we? And if you have any doubt about that, observe a two-year-old in a room full of toys with other two-year-olds. Don't ever tell me that kids are born innocent. They are little thieves. <laughs> You're laughing because you know it's true. They are grasping, they're like Ebenezer Scrooge. Just grasping, well, some of you are upset with me now for that comparison. It's tr the human heart left to itself, apart from the transforming grace of God, becomes Scrooge every time. A two-year-old in a toy room with other two-year-olds. Watch what happens. Watch what happens. The two-year-old may already have ten toys around him. But the other two-year-old has a toy he doesn't have. What happens? Stealing. It's just the way it is. It's in our hearts. And Paul says, Paul says to us as believers, this needs to stop. This needs to stop. And he, and he says it bluntly. Let him who steals no longer steal. Stop it. That's the force of the language Paul uses when he writes it in the Greek. Stop your stealing. So let me give it to you straight and blunt here like Paul does. If any of you are stealing out there, stop it. Stop it. Stop stealing time or money or paper clips from your boss. Stop cheating on your taxes. Stop exaggerating your hours on your time clock at work. Stop cooking the books or fudging the numbers. Stop shoplifting or violating copyright laws or pirating music or movies or computer programs. Stop borrowing your neighbor's tools without returning them. Stop grossly underpaying your workers if you're an employer. Stop taking what belongs to others and what others have earned. Whatever your circumstances, no matter how hard they are or difficult they are, you must not steal. This is what we are not to do. You got it? That's Paul's message to us. But now, we can't stop there. If we stop there, we're missing the bigger point, the more important point. That's important. That's just the basic, that's just the basic ethic for life given to us by God. Don't steal, but what do we do? Paul says, work hard. Look at, verse, look at verse 28 again. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but let, rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. There are different words for work 
in the Greek language that Paul wrote here. But the word that he chose is a word that speaks of hard work, of labor, of of work that leads you to a point of exhaustion. The kind of work that at the end of the day, you look at and say, whoa, I worked today. Leaves you feeling tired. Makes you realize you put in a good day's work. Work hard. He says, work hard with your hands. Keep your hands active in work. This is a part of the Christian world and life view to see hard work as a good and a holy thing. goes all the way back to the Old Testament. God's pattern from the beginning of time is, goes like this. Six days you shall labor, and on the seventh day you'll rest. Six days, you know, we, we're, we're familiar with, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, a day of rest and all the rest. We forget the second part of that command. Six days shall you labor. We are called to be working here on planet Earth. And in fact, Paul's pretty blunt in 2 Thessalonians where he says in chapter 3, Even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, neither shall he eat. All right, that's pretty blunt. If a man is not willing to work, not talking about the question of whether he or she is able to work. There are physical incapacities and other limitations God gets that. Everybody gets that. But if a man is able to work and he isn't working, neither shall he eat. Really is blunt. How would you paraphrase that? Not willing to work? Let him starve. Let him starve. It's pretty tough stuff. Paul says, work hard. Work hard with your hands. And he says in chapter 4, verse 28 of Ephesians, work hard doing honest work. The, The Greek word literally is good work. Work that is good. That rules out certain jobs. Like selling porn or selling drugs or selling sex or or selling stolen goods or working for the mob. That's not good work. Work hard with your hands what is good. So, what we are not to do, steal. What we are to do, work hard. Now third, why we're to do it. And this is where it gets perhaps a bit surprising. Verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that, notice the purpose clause, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. This is remarkable. The verse starts by saying, don't take what belongs to others. And it ends bringing us all the way around to instead of taking what belongs to others, give to others what they need. And in between is work hard. 
so that you can do that. We are to work hard so that we can give much. You see, the primary motivation for giving and working, the primary motivation for working in the Bible is not so that you can be fulfilled in a career. The primary motivation for working is not so that you can make a lot of money to buy a lot of nice things. The primary motivation for working is so that you can have to give to others. That's radical. That's radical. Christian generosity flows out of a heart motivated, or a Christian work ethic even, flows out of a heart that is motivated by generosity. We want to work so that we can provide for our family, for our children, for our older parents who have needs. We want to work so that we can provide for the poor and the fatherless and the unwell. We want to work so that we can provide for missionaries and mission workers who are doing the work of the kingdom. We want to work so that we can provide for the material needs of pastors and teachers who are serving our spiritual needs. We want to work so that we can provide children's ministry for our children, so that we can provide bridge courses for the lost, so we can provide hospitality and invitations and benevolence and gospel witness and global missions and, and a church facility and Bibles and books and food, whatever is needed to meet the needs of others. We want to work hard so we can give much to all these that are in need. So there's the basic biblical doctrine of work, work hard so you can give much. That basic teaching raises questions, doesn't it? And let me, let me try to address as briefly as possible three questions that I, that I hear people ask often when it comes to especially giving. Question number one, how much are we supposed to give? How much are we supposed to give? Which really isn't asking the best question. A better question is, how can we give more? Or how can we structure our life or our priorities so that we can give more? How can we downsize our lifestyle and simplify our lifestyle so that we have more to give to others? How can we be more like Jesus? who gave himself into a lower standard of living for the sake of others. How can we be more like that? Those are the better questions, but let's stick with the question as it's asked. How much are we supposed to give? And if you're familiar with church life, and let me, let me pause here, say a couple of things. Those of you who are around here a while, you know we don't talk about giving that much in terms of preaching and all of this. So if you're new here, uh, please understand you're not going to hear this every week. You're not going to hear this even once a month. You might hear it once or twice a year, okay? Uh, we don't talk about this much. And also understand this, that as pastors, we don't know when anybody gives. It's part of our policy and our approach that what God's people give is between them and God. And we, I don't know what anyone gives. We don't track that. It's between you and God just like it is between us and God. In our, in our giving. So let me say that right up front. But then as we do that, let's, let's think about this question. How much are we to give? 
What are we supposed to give? And if you're familiar with these things, you will be familiar with what the Bible calls a tithe. A tithe means a tenth, and it refers to the ancient biblical practice of people giving one-tenth of their income to help support the ministry and mission of the church, the church that exists to meet the spiritual and physical needs of its community and of its world. And we believe, though we make it our business not to know your business in terms of what you give, we do believe the Bible teaches that a tithe is a good biblical place to begin in the habit of our giving, uh, a place to begin that we invite everyone to enter into with faith and hope and joy. But there, there are some people who think that tithing isn't for today. They, they think that it was for the, the law of Moses in the Old Testament and no longer applies to us today. But we, we, would, we would say, no, we believe it is for us today. We, we think it's different than perhaps the dietary laws of the Old Testament and some of the other laws and there, there are different reasons for that, and I don't want to go into all detail on it. But one, one reason is simply this, that the practice of tithing actually goes back further in history than Moses. It goes all the way back to Abraham and all the way back to Isaac. It seems to have been a principle, it seems to have been an impulse that God planted in the hearts of his people since the beginning of time. That as a way of showing love for God and as a way of expressing the fact that He is first in heart and priority, a tithe, the tenth of the income is just taken and just given back to Him. And in fact, Jesus, just a few days before He died, reinforced the law of tithing. Even though he had told us we didn't have to abide by the dietary laws of the Old Testament and the ceremonial laws and the Sabbath laws, he says you ought to tithe. You ought to tithe. But yes, we, we believe that tithing is biblical and it's good and it's a, it's a wonderful habit and practice to be in. But there are some dangers to tithing. Excuse me. There are some dangers to tithing. They may not be what you think they are. But one of the dangers of tithing is that it can hide the coldness of our hearts. It can hide the coldness of our hearts. Remember what Jesus did say in Matthew 23? He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness, these you ought to have done. Talking about tithing, you ought to do this without neglecting the others. What Jesus is saying here is that tithing can actually hide a cold and a hard and an ungenerous heart. It's easy to tithe. It's hard to pursue love, mercy, and justice. It's easy to put a check in the offering. It's hard to devote your life to people. Tithing can hide the coldness of our hearts. 
Tithing can mask the phoniness of our worship. How often in Scripture God says, I don't want your offerings. I want your hearts. These people worship me with their lips and with their ties, but their hearts are far from me. It's easy to bring an offering on Sunday. It's hard to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And tithing can mask the fact that your faith and your worship are phony. They're not real. How many churches are filled with people who bring their tithe on Sunday and live life for themselves the rest of the week. Tithing is also perilous because it can restrain, it can restrain true generosity. You see, in the New Testament, the standard for giving is not primarily tithing. The standard for giving is Jesus. In the New Testament, Jesus is held up as, this is how you ought to live. This is how you ought to give. And if we're so fixed on tithing, we can forget the fact that tithing is really just a starting point. It's not the goal. It just gets you going. It's where you start in your lifestyle of giving, biblical giving and generosity, looks at Jesus and say, He made Himself poor for me. How can I live like that? How can I give like that? He became poor all the way to the point of the cross. How do I lay down my life for others? Tithing is biblical, we think, but as a place to start not a goal to reach. Question number two, how are we to give? And I won't stay here long. Uh, how are we to give? And what, what, this is an important question. People ask this. How, how am I to give? I know I'm supposed to give and give generously, but can I just kind of do it on my own and do my own thing with that? And, and obviously people, they're free to, to uh, give generously and give on their own. But in the Scriptures, it's pretty clear that the normal way for Ephesians 4.28 to play out, give to those that have need, is through the church. Through the church. In the Old Testament, the tithes were brought to the temple and to the spiritual leaders to be distributed. In the book of Acts chapter 4, when the early Christians sold their houses and lands, it says they brought the proceeds to the apostles, laid it at the feet of the apostles to be distributed to those who had need. In Acts 12, when there was a famine, there was a collection taken up in all of the churches, and it was sent by Paul and Barnabas to the elders in Jerusalem to take care of the needs of the flock. In 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, there is another contribution being collected and it's administrated and led and done by spiritual leaders. This is, this is the normal pattern that it's through the church. There, the way God has ordained it is that our tithes and offerings kind of go into a, a spiritual treasury in the church from which those resources are drawn to meet the needs of the poor, the work of the gospel and of the kingdom in the world. And that's, that's how it seems to be done. And so we encourage us all to pursue that. But that leads to a third question. 
If I give sacrificially, will my needs be met? This is where we realize that the biblical teaching on giving is really a call to faith, isn't it? It's a call to our hearts from our God and our Father in which he is saying to us, do this and watch me provide. In Matthew 6, Jesus warns us about anxiety, about food and clothes. He says in verses 31 and 33, Do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? But seek first the kingdom of God. And all these things will be added to you. God is saying, When you give, I will provide. When you give, I will provide. Or in Philippians 4, 18 and 19, I have received, Paul writes, full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. God is saying, you give, I'll provide. You give, I'll provide. You know Malachi 3, right? Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, and I will open the windows of heaven for you and I'll pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. When we give, God provides. And when we give more, God will give more to give. When we give more, God will give more to give. This is taught in 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 11. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Notice it. When we give more, He will give us more to give. When we plant the seed of generosity, God will return to us enough to be even more generous, to plant more seeds and more seeds and more seeds. So work hard so that you can give much. Make this a way of life, a joyful. God loves a cheerful giver. Make this an act of worship. Make this about worship. Did you notice what Paul said about the Philippians offering in chapter 4 of Philippians? Their gift was a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. 
It's the language of worship. Folks, when we, when we come on Sundays and we give our tithes and offerings, we're not just doing the business of the church. We're worshiping God. We are saying to our God, Oh, Father in heaven, you have given us all we have. You have made us rich in Christ. We have the unsearchable riches of His grace. We have an inheritance that will not fade away. We have the surpassing love of Christ lavished upon us. Oh Lord, our hearts are grateful. Our hearts are thankful. Our hearts love You. Our hearts praise You. We return to You an offering. We return to You our praise. Receive this offering. Not to buy anything from you. The money's already yours, God. Not to earn anything from you because we can't earn anything with you. But to give to you, to return to you the first fruits. Because you're worthy. And because you're good. And because even the poorest among us is rich. Both spiritually and materially. Even the poorest among us has been given much. And so, may we see this not as a grudging thing, not as a moralistic thing, but as a gospel thing. As something that flows out of a heart that has been touched by the amazing, lavish grace of God. I want to ask the... Uh, worship team to return to the platform and and as they do I, I want to make sure that we we see something very significant here there is something that we must notice in this text. In Ephesians 4 and verse 28, Paul is dealing with the eighth commandment, right? Thou shalt not steal. And I want you to notice that he's expounding that command. He's telling us what it means. And what he's saying to us is that to really obey the eighth commandment, thou shalt not steal. It's not enough just to not steal. Full obedience to that commandment is be generous. The point of the commandment is have a heart that overflows with generosity. And that's true of all of the commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. The point of that is not just don't have any idols or false gods. The point of that is have the one God as the one and only joy and love of your life. And when he says, don't take the name of the Lord in vain, the point of that is not just, well, don't misuse his name. No, use his name with reverence. Use His name with praise. Use His name with love. Use His name to His glory. And when it says, don't commit adultery, it's not just saying, don't cheat on your spouse. It is saying, love your spouse. 
Love her, love him devotedly and lastingly and perseveringly and forever like God loves you. And when it says, don't bear false witness against your neighbor, it's not just saying don't lie about your neighbor. It is saying affirm and praise and speak positively and, and affirmingly of your neighbor. And when it says don't covet, it's not just saying don't envy what your neighbor has. It is saying be content with what you have and celebrate the fact that your neighbor has stuff you don't have. And when we begin to understand the law of God that way, here's the question. How well are you doing with the commandments of God? Are you getting any of them right? Are you even beginning to? Oh, friends, we are all lawbreakers, are we not? We are all commandment violators every day of our life. There's not been one second of my life when I've obeyed any of those commandments perfectly. Which means that every second of my life, I've been disobeying God. Which means that I have a debt of sin to this God. And it's a debt I cannot pay, for it is far bigger, and far deeper, and far more vast than I have the resources to atone for. Behold, on a donkey, a Savior comes. We call it the triumphal entry of Christ. I'm not sure how triumphal it was. It was Jesus' entry to death. He came to Jerusalem on the Passover so that he might become the Passover lamb. He came to Jerusalem to die, to bear our sins. He who kept all the commandments perfectly. He who loved the Lord his God with all his heart and all his soul and all his mind and all his strength, all his days, every hour, every second. He who loved his neighbor as himself with perfect love for every sinner that crossed his path. Jesus was friend of sinners and sacrifice for sinners. He who was the perfect law keeper was treated as if he was a law breaker. That's Good Friday. He who was without sin became a sin offering for us. If you're here this morning and you're looking at your life and you're realizing perhaps like never before, I am, I am a moral mess. Tim, you're talking about the law of God in ways that I've never heard it before. By that standard, there's no hope for me. Ah, uh, there is hope for you. There is. His name is Jesus. Jesus offers himself to you as Savior and Lord. He says to you, if you will repent of your sins, and if you will believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. 
If you believe that he died for your sins, and if you will believe that his perfectly righteous life is counted, can be counted as yours before God through faith in him, you will be saved, you will be forgiven of all of your broken laws, all of your violations of the commandments of God. You go free because he didn't go free. Oh, if you're here this morning and you know you need that kind of Savior. Then Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If your conscience is weary, if your conscience is burdened, come to Jesus. There's perfect rest in him. I wonder if you'll bow your heads with me right now. As, as I just want to pray. I want to pray that if you're in a place this morning where you've never truly put your faith in Jesus, you will do it right now. And, and maybe this prayer can be a bit of a guide for you. You may want to echo the prayer in your own heart. Not because just saying some words saves you, but if this is sincerely expressed, if you are repenting of your sins and you want Jesus to be your Savior, this maybe can help you in talking to God in this moment. He may want to pray something like this, Dear Lord Jesus, I know, I know I'm a sinner. I know I've broken all your laws more times than I can count. And I know that this is a debt I cannot pay. But I hear, Lord Jesus, that you died for debtors like me. And you rose again from the dead to be a Savior for all who believe. And so Jesus, I ask you to save me. Forgive me of all my sins. I believe you died for them. And I believe you rose from the dead. And you defeated death. And you're alive. And you are king. And I want you to be my king. I want you to be my Lord. I want you to be my Savior. As we continue to reflect, friends, if in your heart this morning there's just been an awakening, a sense of, yeah, this is what I need, this is who I need, we want to make sure that you have a chance to talk with us. If there are questions you have about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to follow Jesus, we want to make sure that we have a chance to answer those questions and just to pray with you. And, and so there's going to be one or two folks up here in the front following our worship just to pray with you and talk with you. We invite you to make sure to approach us because... What a glorious thing it would be if coming in this morning you were lost and guilty and on your way to hell and leaving this morning you were found and forgiven and on your way to heaven. What a glorious thing that would be. Let's, let's stand together. And let's 
sing to the Lord of His wonderful cross, of His glorious love for us, and let's give to Him our hearts, our souls, our all.